Hello everyone and welcome to Amanpour, here's what's coming up. Cheer up, it's a new year people. That is IMF head Kristalina Georgieva with good news. The world economy is stronger than you think. And she's joining me in a world exclusive. But world events could always intervene, like Israel's war in Gaza where intense fighting continues. I'll speak to Nimrod Novik, former advisor to Prime Minister Shimon Peres about that and about Israel's Supreme Court striking down a key part of Netanyahu's controversial judicial overhaul. Plus, is trust in the media really that low? Michelle Martin discusses with pollsters Jennifer Benz and Mariana Misa Hernandez. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in London. The IMF kicks off the new year with some good news on the global economy. And in a moment, my exclusive interview with the managing director, Kristalina Georgieva. But first, she warns that any number of global crises could intervene, like Israel's war on Gaza, where no end is in sight. Tonight, Hamas confirms its deputy political leader has been killed in a blast in the Lebanese capital, Beirut, fueling fears of an extended war. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is expected to make yet another trip to the Middle East this week as the United States and Israel are increasingly at odds over tactics. More than 22,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza, according to the health ministry there. This after Hamas killed 1,200 Israelis on October 7th. Israel now says it's pulling back some of its soldiers because of the toll on its own economy. Meanwhile, in an unprecedented ruling, Israel's Supreme Court has struck down a controversial judicial reform law. It's a victory for protesters who spent months on the streets before October 7th. So, the new year starts with precarious politics and no stated exit plan for this war. Nimrod Novik was a policy advisor to Prime Minister Shimon Peres and to the National Security Council, and he's now with the Israel Policy Forum. He's also a member of Commanders for Israel Security. It's a nonpartisan group of defense experts that promotes separation from the Palestinians into two states. And he's joining me now from Tel Aviv. Nimrod Novik, welcome to the program. Uh, can I ask you to react uh, with your analysis as to what Hamas is saying and what a former Israeli official, Danny Danon, has claimed that Israel has assassinated uh, the deputy political leader in, uh, in Beirut, in fact. Well, I would say two things. One, it's a uh, very uh, significant accomplishment of Israeli intelligence and operational capabilities uh, to do something like this at the heart of uh, Beirut. Um, I think that uh, uh, characterizing him uh, by his formal position as deputy of the political wing uh, doesn't really tell the full story of the, of the man. Um, he is a, a competitor uh, for the true leader of Hamas, Yahir Sinar, who is now in Gaza uh, and was in charge uh, of uh, creating terror cells uh, uh, and operations uh, in the West Bank, out of his uh, base uh, in Beirut. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a message uh, to all Hamas operatives who were responsible for the atrocities of uh, October 7th and others uh, that Israel's long arm uh, is going to get them.
And do you con are you concerned that this is in Beirut, right? It's in a foreign country across a border. Are you concerned, like the Americans have been, like you, many of Israel's allies, that this could cause this dreaded extended war? You know, the, the surprise by which we were taken on October 7th uh, taught us a lesson uh, of humility in trying to understand the thinking of the adversary. Uh, I would say the same goes for Hezbollah uh, and its leader, uh, Nasrallah. Um, so whatever I say, I take myself with a huge grain of salt. Uh, but my analysis is that it does not change the equation, that whatever calculations guided Hezbollah uh, effort to uh, do something in response to what's going on in the south, in Gaza, uh, to show that it is there and it is present and it is identified in, 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 in uh, militant ways uh, with Gazans, uh, but uh, not to trigger an all-out confrontation with Israel, especially when Israel is so well mobilized and prepared uh, on our northern uh, front. Uh, I believe that that calculus uh, would not be uh, altered, uh, even though it was in Beirut, but it was a Hamas leader, not a Hezbollah leader. Finally, the final point I would make here is uh, given that uh, Hezbollah is uh, basically an arm uh, of uh, Iran, uh, it has its own uh, independent decision-making, but it does uh, uh, heed uh, advice and perhaps orders from Tehran. Uh, I don't think that the Iranians are in the mood uh, to see their huge investment in creating Hezbollah, arming Hezbollah, training Hezbollah, funding Hezbollah, uh, uh, just in order to retaliate uh, for uh, Israeli assassination of a senior Hamas militant. And yet, uh, Benny Gantz, obviously a former you know, military personality himself, and now in the uh, unity government or the emergency government, has threatened that the IDF will act, and this was before, before this event of today, will act if Hezbollah doesn't, as he says, stop provocations uh, across the northern Israel border. This is what he's, uh, he said. Let's just play it. The situation on Israel's northern border demands change. The stopwatch for a diplomatic solution is running out. If the world and the Lebanese government don't act in order to prevent the firing on Israel's northern residents and to distance Hezbollah from the border, the IDF will do it. So again, I mean, he's making a clear, you know, threat to use the IDF. Do you think, and as some people have suggested, that at some point during the Gaza war, they may, the Israelis, turn their attention, your country, to uh, to, to, to Lebanon and to Hezbollah. Do you think that moment is approaching? It is quite a possibility. First, things may get out of control um, by no intention of either side. Um, one rocket, one missile uh, hits civilian population uh, and causes uh, considerable casualties, and we are at full-fledged war. Uh, but uh, as long as the parties are in control and are containing, Israel has a serious dilemma. Uh, because of uh, Hezbollah proximity to our northern population, uh, we have evacuated in three months now uh, tens of thousands of uh, Israelis from their homes, uh, jobs, kindergartens, schools, whatever you. 
Um, and they're not going to go back uh, watching Hezbollah tens of feet from their homes after the experience that we went through uh, in October 7th in the South. So uh, I believe that what uh, Benny Gantz was trying to do uh, is reinforce diplomacy uh, by uh, uh, advising uh, Hezbollah that if diplomacy doesn't work, uh, Israel has other, other means at his disposal. Let me ask you about uh, your analysis as to why your government has said that it is going to be pulling back some troops from Gaza. And what is your analysis of how the war in Gaza is going? As we mentioned, the United States has been telling Israel to just stop with the killing of so many civilians and so much civilian infrastructure. And the Secretary of State apparently is coming back for his fourth visit since October 7th. What is your assessment of Israel's, I guess, achievements on the ground in Gaza? Well, um, from a purely narrow military perspective, the IDF is performing very, very well, uh, has accomplished much of the objectives in the north, uh, is now concentrating more on the south, uh, while so-called cleanup is still going on in the north as well. Um, there were, the government has set itself and the IDF uh, three objectives for this war. Uh, one was to destroy the Hamas military capabilities. The second was to destroy its ability to govern Gaza. And the third is a long-term uh, securing that uh, it can never come back uh, to threaten our civilian population the way it, it, it had. Um, I'd say that the second one is basically, has basically been accomplished. Uh, Hamas is no longer governing Gaza. The first one uh, of uh, destroying its military capabilities is in progress. Uh, and the IDF has designed for itself different modes of operation in different sectors of the Gaza Strip, uh, dictated by military consideration, but also uh, by uh, uh, civilian and terrain. Uh, and since much of the northern population uh, was uh, urged uh, to move south, uh, it is much more difficult to operate uh, without uh, too many civilian casualties uh, in the south. So the idea of, um, you know, there, there was a talk about moving from stage two to stage three, and then from stage three to the morning after. None of these are cutoff points. There is no day at which we move from one stage to the other or from the, second, the third to, uh, uh, to the morning after. Uh, these are all processes and they are happening as we speak. Uh, the IDF is uh, reducing uh, the, the uh, intensity of its operations in the north and therefore can release some reserves. The pressure on the economy of over 300,000 uh, mobilized reservists is tremendous. So the more they can release, the more they will. Um, and the third one of uh, securing that uh, neither Hezbollah nor his successor, by a different name, maybe more vicious even, uh, is not threatening our northern population. Uh, that's the sticking point primarily, I think, uh, between the U.S. and Israel above and beyond the humanitarian issue, which is serious. Uh, but it is the long range, the long term. Uh, what comes after we have accomplished our uh, objectives? 
to the whatever extent we will. I mean, we will not destroy Hezbollah. I'm sorry, Hamas, as some of our leaders have kept promising our people. Uh, Hamas is not just a military organization, not just a political organization. It's an ideology, it's an idea, it's a movement that exists way beyond Gaza or the West Bank or both. Um, okay. And we're not going to go after every single last operative. Uh, so that objective is not going to be accomplished. But uh, the fact that the Israeli government refuses uh, to discuss a strategy for the morning after, uh, who comes after us, is a very serious sticking point. And it is even an impediment uh, for the IDF uh, to structure its operation in a way that leads to that political objective. So let me play what your prime minister said this weekend, essentially uh, intimating that this war is going to go on for a long time, even for most of the for the next year. And as you say, no exit plan has been publicly uh, articulated and a huge amount of difference of opinion within Israel and between Israel and the United States and its other allies on what, as you say, looks like the morning after. So this is what Netanyahu has just said about continuing this war. The war is at its height. We are fighting on all of the fronts. We have huge success, but we also have painful cases. Achieving victory will require time. As the chief of staff has said, the war will continue for many more months. Again, which is not what his allies want to hear. So what do you, and I'm, I'm assuming that you are not necessarily in Netanyahu's camp. You used to work for Prime Minister Shimon Peres, who was, you know, Netanyahu's political opponent, opponent and was very much uh, in favor of the two-state solution. And obviously Netanyahu is not in favor of that. So where do you see the next steps? Well, I think that uh, if indeed um, the IDF moves gradually uh, from the intensive stage of the war to a far less intensive one with far less uh, dominant presence uh, on the ground uh, in a completely different mode of operation uh, against targets rather than comprehensive assault with huge formations, um, the, the, the moment for a morning after uh, can begin. But for that to happen, um, the Netanyahu government must accept the prerequisite of all those who are willing to contribute to the morning after uh, under the leadership of the United States. And that includes Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and Egypt and Jordan and, and a few others. Uh, all of them are united in one thing. Uh, we're not going to go there just to see our investment go up in flames the morning after. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we have to see that it is done under the auspices of the Palestinian Authority um, and that it is within some kind of a political horizon uh, that suggests that the next two, five, ten years will not resemble the last decade. Uh, for that to happen, Netanyahu has to accept these two uh, premises. He has not yet. He's walking back his objection to the Palestinian Authority uh, having a role to play. Uh, now nobody talks about the Palestinian Authority by its initials PA, but rather RPA, which is President Biden's uh, creation, reformed or revitalized Palestinian Authority. Um, so yes, there will be a need for two processes, one by which the Palestinian Authority undergoes very serious reforms, uh, including 
with support from Arab players, including with a sea change in Israel policy vis-a-vis the Palestinian Authority. So that's one process to prep it uh, for the job of taking over the, the Gaza Strip and demonstrating that Gaza and the West Bank are one polity. Uh, and the second one is the interim. What happens in Gaza until the PA is ready to do that? Um, and and, and uh, uh, for that to happen, as I said, uh, those who are willing to contribute wants to make sure that it is sponsored by the PA, even though the PA is not yet ready mm-hmm. uh, to shoulder their responsibility. Uh, Nimrod Novig, there are many who believe that as long as Prime Minister Netanyahu sits where he sits um, and faces the legal troubles that he faces, uh, that, that he will not agree to resign. He said it himself. He will not agree to necessarily end this war on a, short, on a shorter term. And he does not agree with the two-state solution. So there's that. The other thing that's happened is the Supreme Court has dealt him a political or a legal setback by uh, striking down parts of the controversial judicial reform law. How does all this manifest, do you think? Will people be back on the streets again, or does the war preclude that? What, what is the next step after this move by the Supreme Court? Well, I think that uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, Pr- Prime Minister Netanyahu has demonstrated that keeping his coalition of 64 together uh, as his last, shall we say, political bulletproof vest from... Uh, a harsh sentence should his trial on three counts of uh, corruption reach its conclusion. Um, And those 64 uh, include the far fringes of Israeli society, uh, Jewish supremacists, messianic annexationists, uh, self-proclaimed homophobes. I mean, just people who were at the margins of Israeli society and were brought together and provided positions of power by a prime minister who needed them because they were the only ones who were willing to offer him uh, this uh, possible escape from his legal predicament. Now he is captive to their uh, whims. Um, they can bring him down any day should he violate their dreams, their dreadful dreams. Um, and uh, as a consequence, his uh, fr- freedom to negotiate with the U.S. a formula that falls short of the two prerequisites that I mentioned earlier, that the PA sponsors Gaza rehabilitation, and that it is all done in the context of some kind of a political horizon, his freedom to reach that kind of a formula has been very, very narrow. Uh, I'm not sure that the the administration in Washington is in the mood uh, uh, to try and persuade uh, all the Arab partners to accommodate uh, Netanyahu's constraints. So yes, we are in a very serious problem when the prime minister uh, seems to face a a conflict of interest in the conduct uh, of the war. Uh, As to the protest, uh, I think that the moment that uh, the general public will get the sense that the IDF has moved from phase two to phase three, to which I uh, alluded earlier, That is to say that uh, many reserves are being uh, sent back home, uh, that Mm -hmm. the operation is much less intensity, that we don't wake every morning dreading the moment we call it uh, we are allowed to announce, which is when the media announces 
who died in battle uh, the last day. Um, once that sinks in, uh, I think we're going to see a resumption okay. uh, of the protest, but this time, not in order to protect our democracy, but in order to see those responsible for the huge uh, strategic failure go. Yeah. And Nibron Novik, is worth saying that Prime Minister Netanyahu is the only one of the main uh, pillars of your government who has not taken responsibility for that failure. Thank you so much indeed for joining us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. As we said, this war and Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine have had economic impacts around the world. This time last year, predictions of widespread recessions for 2023 did not actually come true, including for the United States. Inflation and prices continue to come down. So was last year's outlook too pessimistic? And what can we expect for the year ahead? Kristalina Georgieva, managing director of the IMF, joined me recently for an exclusive New Year New Year interview. Kristalina Georgieva, welcome to the program. Thank you. So let me ask you, were you surprised at the end of 2023 about how the economy landed? For instance, in the United States, everybody was talking about a recession, but that actually has not happened. Well, uh, in the beginning of uh, last year, we were worried that uh, the economy may be hit so hard by high interest rates that there could be a risk of recession in many places. And I'm delighted that it has proven to be too pessimistic an outlook. What we see today is uh, inflation is going down. Labor markets remain very strong. People have jobs. And the prospects for the year uh, are of not very strong growth, but growth nonetheless. And what will that mean, growth versus not very strong growth? What will that mean for the individual who's worried about their buying ability, their purchasing ability? 
Well, uh, the expectation for this year and for the next couple of years is that growth would be around 3%. To put it in perspective for people, in the previous decade, before the pandemic, the average growth was close to 4%. So, yes, we retain a positive perspective, but productivity is, relatively speaking, low. Growth expectations are below what we need for improvements in the uh, lives of people everywhere. And what is even more troubling, uh, Christiane, is that there are countries, primarily low-income countries, that over the last years have been falling further behind rather than catching up. So the world needs to be united to be more prosperous for everybody. My wish is for us to overcome what divides us, come together, work together for the benefit of everyone. Okay, so that's really interesting. The idea that, I mean, I'm afraid it is this, a political coming together rather than fragmentation is also better for the economy. So what I wanna ask you is specifically in the United States, what do you forecast will be the state of the economy in 2024? Uh, we expect in 2024, uh, the trend in inflation going down to continue. And uh, on that basis, uh, the Fed has already announced that there is a prospect for interest rates to start going down. This would be a relief for businesses and for households. Uh, we see uh, growth prospects for the United States uh, uh, to be fairly uh, strong. Uh, and that is translating into a very strong labor market. Where the US economy is today, definitely soft landing. So that's, people should be feeling good then about the economy, is that correct? Uh, people should be feeling good about the economy because they finally would see relief in terms of uh, prices. Uh, the inflation moderating already and continuing to moderate is due to the decisiveness of the Fed to increase interest rates. And while that has been painful, especially uh, for uh, small businesses, uh, it has brought the desired impact without pushing the economy into recession. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is, for all Americans, good news. You have a job and prices are finally starting uh, to moderate. So can I ask you this? There is this thing called vibes. I mean, vibes <laughs> is used by the younger generation to describe everything. But it appears to be there's something vibey that is not aligning in the United States right now. Can you explain that? Why do people feel so bad about the economy despite the successes that you have just outlined and the fact that it should get better throughout 2024? What is it economically or, or in, the, in the atmosphere that causes individuals to tell mm. pollsters that somehow I feel bad? The uh, two factors that determine the vibes 
in the United States and actually elsewhere, one price dynamics. Uh, Christian, for decades, we got accustomed to very low inflation. We forgot what it is for inflation to go up and suddenly it jumped. That has impacted the mood of people because for some, for the younger generation, they don't even know what is this thing, inflation. They didn't live through one. Secondly, interest rates went up. Again, for a long time, interest rates were very low, sometimes even in negative territory. And when you get accustomed to uh, borrowing cheap, then when interest rates jump, that is a shock. Of course, interest rates jumped to cure inflation. But for the ordinary people, these two things are, seem like problems, not like one is a problem, the other one is the solution. Only when the solution truly works, uh, people would feel more comfortable. Once they see interest rates going down, well, first inflation going down, interest rates are going down. Uh, but my message to everyone is you have a job and interest rates are going to moderate this year because inflation is going down. Cheer up! It is a new year, people. <laughs> well, I'm sure a lot of people will be very, very pleased to hear you say that. In a recent um, foreign affairs op-ed, you wrote about Cold War 2.0 and fragmentation. You've said that fragmentation is a process that begins with increasing barriers to trade and investment and in its extreme form, ends with countries breaking into rival economic blocks. What does that mean and why are rival economic blocks bad? What it means is that uh, uh, we will see supply chains extended with more links than are necessary, adding to costs. And the result would be, for ordinary people, what they buy in the store is more expensive. When we look at the risks of fragmentation, they are materializing already. We already see a gra gravitation of countries towards each other in separate uh, blocks. And uh, when we simulate it, what would be the cost of it if it continues? Uh, it is quite, quite dramatic. We can get all the way up to losing 7% of global GDP. To put it in a context, what is 7% of global GDP? This is like uh, France and Germany disappearing from the economic map of the world. Well, we do need to accept that security of supplies today is a necessity. So, Christian, no more we can say, oh, well, just in time, let's not worry about costs. Uh, because we have seen from COVID and from the impact of the war in Ukraine that when supplies are interrupted, there are dramatic consequences. Mm -hmm. So, some Attention to security of supply is necessary, but it need not be taken to a point that it brings us back in terms of well-being of uh, people everywhere. 
Kristalina Georgieva, you talk about blocks, and I just want to ask you what these blocks look like, these fragmented blocks. Uh, it is indeed uh, the rivalry between uh, US and China that is more prominent in economic terms. Uh, what we know from the uh, Cold War in the past, I lived in it, I was on the other side of the Iron Curtain then, was that trade continued, but trade between the blocks shrunk dramatically. Consequences, there are certain things that are better produced, cheaper produced in one of these blocks, and the other block would have no access to them. So we are all better off to find ways to reduce frictions, to concentrate on security concerns that are real and meaningful, and not go willy-nilly in fragmenting the world economy. We would end up with a smaller pie. Uh, I think there is a way, rationally, to compete where it is important for economies and to cooperate on issues where no country can succeed on its own. Talking about an isolated and, and it sounds weird to say this because of all the support it's got, but Ukraine is suffering right now. Not only was the shock of the war, as you've talked about shock upon shock upon shock last year, but now you see um, the United States, the EU, not just defaulting on their military aid, but also on, on, on financial aid. As head of the IMF, you've just approved an additional $900 million for Ukraine's budget support. What exactly does that mean? Let me uh, first express my full admiration for what the Ukrainian people have achieved over the last year. They have managed their economy remarkably well. In 2023, Ukraine grew by 4.5% when the world grew at 3%. How? The How? World. How? by being very focused on supporting their economy where it is more critical, by making sure that there, there is no war, the economy is blossoming, by being brave to go to work every day. I saw that when I was in, uh, in Kyiv. Uh, they brought inflation to 5.1%. There are countries that are not in a war that are envious of this result. In other words, Ukraine has earned the support of the world because it has been so responsible for how they manage their finances, how they collect taxes. They collect 36% of GDP in taxes. In that context, we have a program uh, of uh, uh, about $16 billion from the IMF that mobilizes 122 billion support for Ukraine for four years. I discussed it with uh, President Zelensky when he was uh, in, uh, in, in Washington a couple of weeks, weeks ago, urging him to continue on that very path, perform, demonstrate that Ukraine earns and deserves the support of its partners. And I remain optimistic that uh, uh, Ukraine, because it Ukraine has earned it. Ukraine will receive that support. We from the IMF uh, are uh, doing our part. Ukraine is doing their part. 
the friends of Ukraine are to do their part as well. I hear you urging that. Putin, on the other hand, is pretty much saying, see, I told you so, the West would, you know, lose interest uh, and Ukraine will be destroyed because it's nothing without foreign uh, help, outside help. So I want to ask you, are you shocked, surprised? Should we be shocked, surprised that actually Russia's economy has stabilized and it's doing pretty well, thank you very much, despite all the sanctions, despite all the freezing of assets, despite all what what the politicians decided to do to punish it for invading Ukraine? Well, the Russian economy is performing well because of the boost of financing that comes from the state. It is a war economy. When you look at the Russian growth, what you notice is it looks very much like the Soviet Union. Production is up consumption is down. So yes, in this short term, because of that uh, financial support that goes for the war economy in Russia, you see these results. But longer term, the uh, fact that uh, Russia has lost access to technology is going to hurt. And the fact that uh, Russia at some point has to bring production of arms down uh, while consumption is so depressed that uh, that is going to hurt. So now to end our conversation, what do you hope for, wish for 2024 on the economic stage? To continue to live in a very resilient world economy that surprises us on the upside. And uh, uh, what I'm wishing for frankly, is a boring year. We have had too many years with surprises that would shock us. May we please have one that doesn't bring any of those. On that and note... And of course, I pray for peace. And so do we all. Kristalina Georgieva, Managing Director of the IMF, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And indeed, many people around the world probably would subscribe to her wish there too, for a boring year without too many shocks or surprises, and with peace. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Now to the United States, where the fate of democracy is at stake ahead of a crucial presidential election and the future, of course, of two major wars. This, as trust in news organization, continues to remain at record lows, or does it? Our next guests argue that there is far more faith in the media than we're led to believe. Jennifer Benz and Mariana Meza Hernandez from NORC at the University of Chicago, a research and polling organization, join Michelle Martin to discuss the recent Washington Post op-ed, actually people don't hate the media as much as you think. Thanks, Christiane. Jenny Benz, Mariana Mesa Hernandez, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. 
So we called you because you're both with the Public Affairs and Media Research Unit at the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago. And you decided to dig into your data from the last few years to better understand how Americans view and trust or don't trust the media. What made you take a look at that? I mean, we're, we're coming at this from a place where we feel like independent journalism and a common space for Americans to be able to talk about and share facts are key ingredients for a well-functioning democracy. And we've certainly seen over the years um, lots of data from NORC um, and from other polling organizations um, showing a really steep decline in public trust in journalism. Um, it's part of a larger um, phenomena of uh, declining trust in a lot of public institutions. Um, but we really felt like that kind of dire narrative um, doesn't give a whole lot of room for us to figure out how to fix things. Um, and so what we really wanted to understand is what do these big picture numbers really mean? What does it mean to not trust the press? And so we've been collecting data on news consumers and how they use the news, why, what they're looking for, for a number of years now. And we wanted to kind of bring all that to data together and try and really understand the nuance of what these lower trust numbers mean and what nuggets we could get out of that to figure out what the solution should be. Obviously, the sort of the predicate of this is that it matters, it matters beyond people who are just in the business itself. Could you just say more about why you think it matters? Yeah, I mean, we certainly feel like this is a problem that goes beyond just kind of understanding or fixing the business model of journalism or, you know, sort of reinforcing um, our, our own beliefs about the industry. But this is really research that's designed um, to try and help address this critical problem because we consider um, journalism, we consider, consider independent reporting, um, research facts, data, all of these are key ingredients to a healthy and functioning democracy in this country. Um, and so we do start from that premise. And, you know, our goal is to dig into these data and conduct the research that we feel like will help people have some insights and um, help the industry figure out a way out of this trust crisis. Okay. So here's why one of the reasons we called you is your team outlined, outlined your findings in an op-ed for the Washington Post titled, Actually, People Don't Hate the Media as much as you think. You, you, tell me why you say that. Why you say that in this piece? Tell me what some of the findings are. Sure. Um, I think this tied to what Jenny was mentioning of trying to go into the details to really understand what people um, feel about the media, but more, more importantly, their media or the, the type of media they personally consume, which might be different or can add some detail to what we're discussing here. Specifically, on, on when we ask about their feelings on local media, what we find is that liberals, moderates, and conservatives alike, a majority of all three groups uh, have a, the majority say they have a, a high trust in local news or local, local press which is probably something that you would not expect uh, thinking about the, the divisions or the polarization uh, narrative that we always listen about. Some of the, these groups tend to trust uh, less uh, the media versus some uh, tend to trust the media more. Uh, but what we find is when you actually ask about local media, 
those differences are not as stark and, and you find some um, some positives rather than negatives there. Here's one thing I do want to ask about is that different polling organizations have come up with different numbers. Um, Gallup, for example, says that only 34 percent of Americans trust the news. But your group, NORC, found that something like 55 percent trust the news. And a different organization, Pew, found that it was like something like 61 percent. Can you can you help us understand why those numbers look so different? Yeah, I think, I mean, you get slightly different um, responses from all of these polling organizations, depending on exactly how you ask the question um, and um, the types of response options that you give people. Um, you know, one thing that is consistent across all of these organizations who have um, put in the time to be able to track these measures over the years is that no matter sort of what the exact estimate is, everybody is showing this decline over time. Um, and I think the, the one thing that we tried to get at in digging into these data a little bit more and trying to unpack it is, you know, what do people really mean when they say that they don't have a great deal of confidence in the press or that they only trust uh, journalism a little bit, um, you know, depending on all of these different question wordings. Um, and when you disentangle some things, you start to see that the, the levels of trust are maybe a little bit higher than you might expect. So, um, you know, for example, a lot of people consider the, you know, the biggest function of journalism to deliver accurate facts uh, to the public. And when you ask people, um, you know, how much confidence they have in the press and in journalism to be able to report the facts accurately, um, 55% say that they're pretty confident. Um, so um, sometimes these kind of big picture measures that are important and that we're all looking at over time um, can mask some of the nuance in the data. What what about what it people, what is is that people say they are concerned about? You know, you have concerns about conspiracy theories being sort of, pro, uh, you know, sort of pushed out into the, into the public narrative, or you have people who are concerned about political bias. Did people have different concerns based on who they were or how they identified themselves? We did find some differences in the concerns. So again, I, I think liberals were slightly more concerned about the potential polarization that the press can uh, feel into uh, versus, say, conservatives were more uh, concerned with the uh, issue of misinformation that can be uh, also found. And th those were the, the big uh, concerns for those two groups. But I think also important here is, is highlighting what they had uh, in common and the, what they were actually looking for in the press. And again, it relates to what Jenny was mentioning of having the facts, right? Having a press that relies on, on, on giving people the facts and, and what's uh, real instead of versus like saying, highlighting more opinions or, or the journalists' opinions. Uh, people actually look for for the facts when they, when they look at news. And of course their concerns uh, vary slightly, but I think overall, um, again, there's some, there's some co common ground there across ideologies. And, and what about across demographic or age group? Let's put it that way. Across generations, let's put it that way. Because it's another one of those stereotypes that, you know, millennials and Gen Zs don't, you know, 
won't, everything's supposed to be free, information's supposed to be free, not, don't want to pay for anything. I mean, that's one of those, so, or, or don't care at all or get all their news from TikTok or whatever. And it, 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 what, what did your data find there? Sure, so I think there, uh, in the past year, North released uh, a report where we actually looked at the younger generations. We looked at uh, uh, Gen Z, millennials, and, and the younger adults. And we actually asked a, a ton of questions of their news consumption and their opinion towards the press. And one of the key facts that we found is what you were mentioning is that actually those younger generations do pay for for uh, news and media, either by directly paying or donating to those sources, which may be more varied than we actually uh, think when we think about traditional media, but there's still a, a sign of a lot of engagement when, when it comes to news with those younger audiences that also points out uh, the relevance of, of the press and media for them um, and how they still rely on them to, to get the news. So, Jenny, this is what I wanted to ask you. Why do you think we have such a negative picture of of our of of the way we think our fellow Americans engage with the media? Why do you think it is we have such a negative picture, which you feel to be at odds with a lot of the, the research that you've uncovered? You know, the industry certainly has its challenges and we're not, you know, in any way trying to to downplay those. But we feel like the solutions can come out of um, some of these points that Mariana was mentioning where we can find common ground. And um, I think one potential challenge is that we've um, where we see this disconnect is that um, we've done some studies where we've actually interviewed journalists um, and we've interviewed the public uh, to try and understand what they do and don't get about each other. Um, and in some ways, you know, there is a little bit of a, a failure to communicate with our news consumers. And so, you know, one potential um, solution coming out of this work is thinking about the ways that we um, explain what we're doing in our journalism. And, you know, these data showed um, that there are some fundamental misunderstandings about each other. You know, we have um, roughly half the public that, you know, told us that they, they weren't even really sure, um, you know, what an op-ed was or the, what distinguishes an editorial from um, a regular news article. Um, and one of their concerns about the media is that there's too much opinion um, and not enough fact when they feel like they are um, reading the news. And so you can start to see some potential pathways where if we're explaining what we're doing and what the purpose of a news piece might be to the public in, a, in the way that they can understand it, um, we can try and bridge some of those communication gaps. One of the things that you write in the in the editorial that we just mentioned, you write that an exaggerated narrative of media disaster is becoming a problem in itself. Why do you say that? Yeah, I think, you know, this this focus on this incredibly low trust number um, in these some of these big picture public opinion measures is it's the kind of thing that, um, you know, politicians can pick up and really point to to say that, you know, don't trust them, you know, 
we have this independent press in this country, but when large, you know, when the narrative is that these large numbers of, of the public don't trust them, it makes it easy to kind of um, weaponize that lack of confidence in the independent free press in this country and the ability for them to do their jobs. You know, even though there is a lot of positive data in the research that you, you that you kind of did and 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 reviewed you stopped short of saying that the so-called crisis of trust in the news is an illusion so um it suggests that there is a a bit of a crisis so can you just say more about that yeah i mean we we definitely are not trying to put on rose-colored glasses here and and say that there aren't any problems. I mean, we do think that there is a, a crisis of trust in journalism. There's data that there's a crisis in institutional trust kind of writ large in the country right now. Um, and, we, you know, we see a lot of concerning things in the in the data. Um, you know, we've seen some people's concerns about, um, uh, you know, deep concerns about misinformation um, and, you know, blaming journalists as much um, or about as much as they do social media and politicians as a source of that misinformation. Uh, we see concerns about bias and um, ownership of the um, of the press. So there are real concerns in the public, um, but there are also areas of, um, you know, hope and there are areas of some promise. And what we were trying to do is figure out what those um, spots of hope are and figure out how the industry can capitalize on those and try and get us out of the crisis. Your organization's general social survey, which measures trust in institutions, found that the news media and Congress share the lowest levels of confidence of any institutions in the country. Um, below 10% report a great deal of confidence in either. But it just seems funny to me that Congress and the news media are sort of rank, so equally ranked there. And I just wondered if you had some thoughts about that, why, why that might be. Um, yeah, so the General Social Survey is a great resource to understand the trends in the confidence in institutional, not only the press and Congress, but they also have been asking this question about a bunch of, of institutions nationally. Um, and what we see is this decline of uh, in trust overall, right? This decline in trust is not exclusive or uh, uh, to the press or to, to the media, but it's also something that's playing other institutions across the nation. So I think it's more of a another uh, call to action to really understand what's going going on beneath the surface or beneath the top line numbers and see uh, where we can start to rebuild this trust uh, collectively. What are some of the things that you feel that perhaps the people in the legacy media in particular, or the people who care about this could do to kind of bridge this divide? Can you just, can you say more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think to the extent that we can um, open up the black box and sort of um, help people understand what you know the media 
um, is uh, for folks. I mean, we see a lot of people are really concerned that, um, you know, the people that own um, media organizations have a lot of influence on the type of reporting that gets done. Um, and this kind of general lack of understanding of what's happening behind the scenes um, with journalism. So I think transparency is also really key um, to helping people understand, you know, what it is that journalists do, why they're doing it, and what what it is um, uh, in the stories uh, that people should be taking away as they read and consume the news. Jenny Benz, Mariana Mesa Hernandez, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And finally tonight, don't call it a comeback. The sporting year is off to a roaring start as Australia's Queensland tennis tournament sees the return of some shining stars. 37-year-old legend Rafael Nadal was back after a year-long injury timeout, easing past the world number three in a thrilling win. Today is uh, honestly uh, an emotional and important day for me, you know, after uh, probably uh, one of the toughest years of my tennis career without a doubt have the chance to come back after a year and uh, play in front of an amazing crowd uh, and play I think at the play I think at the very positive level to be the first day uh, is something that uh, probably make us feel proud a consistent crowd pleaser, Nadal said this will likely be his final year on the men's tour. He's not the only one coming back with a bang. 2021 US Open winner Emma Raducano returns after surgery to her ankle and both wrists. And four-time Grand Slam winner Naomi Osaka stormed past her opponent to a welcome win after taking time off to deal with mental health issues and to give birth to her daughter. Good luck to all of these game changers this year. And that is it for now. If you ever miss our show, you can always find the latest episode after it airs on our podcast. And remember, you can always catch us online on our website and all across social media. Thank you for watching and goodbye from London. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.